Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the years of the primal form, from the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him an oil skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigor of steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the Come, come to the Sabbath, down by the ruined bridge. Witches and demons are coming, just follow the magic. Good morning, good evening, good whatever, ladies and germs. This is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous, episode five. Welcome. A little bit of merciful fate there, just to start things off. I've been listening to them this morning while out running about, uh, and it's gotten me a little shot of adrenaline. So first things first, you can follow me on Instagram at primordial underscore nemthianga. Uh, Patreon is patreon.com, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Alan Averill, two capital A's. Um, I have some extra content and bits and pieces over there. It's an evil necessity. Apologies for mentioning it so early. So I've been doing a few interviews with random people. Uh, This will not be the episode where I introduce them, but they will be coming shortly. If you have any suggestions for people I should try and reach out and have a chat to, let me know. Um, Some are going to be music related. Others are going to be a little bit different. We're going to try and mix it up. This is the second time that I've recorded this particular podcast. Um, I realized that the last one that I made, I mean, by now... Everyone is pretty drained by this whole viral issue. Do you really need me to repeat the same things right at the beginning, at the top of every podcast about a biometric passport, about all that kind of stuff? Blah, 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 blah. Yep, yep, I get it. Let's talk about some music stuff instead. Even that small bit of singing just there is probably the first time that I've sang in maybe 
four months. I mean, some of you may be listening to this and not actually know that that's theoretically at least what I do. However, you know, the voice is a muscle and if you don't exercise it, a form of atrophy can set in. You know, it's one of the reasons why sometimes old singers definitely lose their tone because as life progresses, bands tend to rehearse less and less. So even a couple of months off, I can hear the difference in my voice. I can hear the cracking, even just trying to hold a straightforward note. I mean, obviously, Merciful Fate isn't the best thing to begin with, but rather than open up with a diatribe about the pandemic and having to stay inside, I thought I'd open up with a little bit of Merciful Fate, you know. I mean, one or the other, right? So what I'm going to do is ramble through a few different issues and see where we end up. Um, considering the voice and considering that somebody asked me about brutal assault and what happened with the sound there, etc., that kind of thing, let's keep it musical for the moment. And someone asked me to talk about Bloodstock. Um, I have to admit that I got rather tired of talking about Bloodstock. I mean, if you don't know what happened, I basically lost my voice completely in front of about, I don't know, eight or 10,000 people or something like this. So I just wanted to discuss maybe a little bit of what that was and what that feels like before moving through a few other musical observations. Basically, losing your voice in front of that many people is no mean feat. I mean, one of the things now is that everything you do is recorded. There's somebody filming every single thing that you do. So back in the day, maybe in the 70s, I'm sure there were gigs where David Coverdale or Robert Plant or even Dio lost their voice and had to go off and leave the band playing instrumentally. I mean, the first time I saw Merciful Fate, oddly enough, was in 1996 in Greece, and the king lost his voice. He came out without his paint on and just croaked to the crowd that he couldn't sing, and the band played kind of instrumental, and he sang a little bit. Now, I heard that he was a big smoker, but until it happens to you, you really don't know the full range of terror that it encompasses, and I... Okay, terror is maybe an exaggeration, but if you're singing alone and you're not playing an instrument, well, then, of course, the voice is the the one piece of armor you have or the weapon you have. And for it to be fully disarmed in public in front of basically thousands of people, it is a, one of those moments where you wish the ground would open up and swallow you realistically. I mean, it's called temporary vocal cord paralysis, apparently. I looked it up online. And true enough, many a singer back in the 70s and 80s would have suffered from this, but there wasn't always somebody with a phone there to film them. That's the thing. Literally nothing you do these days will not be filmed. And that's one of the problems I have sometimes when you listen to people who eulogize 1970s rock and roll antics and then somehow get very moral when somebody even approaches 10 or 20% of them in the modern day. So it's a very strange feeling, basically... I was standing there singing, you know, full-throated singing. Must have been the end of the first song, start of the second song. And I do remember the smoke on the stage being particularly um, thick, grey, which I kind of find a bit pointless, really, because a lot of times at festivals you're playing during the day. So you don't nearly need to bring a lighting technician or there isn't really any need for one so to speak I mean it does look very odd if you're just playing on an on a completely 
unlit stage. I remember seeing Emperor play in Dynamo in 1998 and they had no lights inside the tent. And then Immortal came on right after them with all of the lights, just as the light, the natural light outside began to fail. And to say Immortal kicked their ass, unfortunately so. So there is something to be said for some lights. But during the day, we're playing in the afternoon. And so this thick, huge gray cloud of smoke enveloped me. And I literally just remember my voice going from a hot, like I literally could not make even a noise. I don't know if you've ever hurt yourself very badly, cut your arm open or something like this. There's a moment where you look at the cut and you will see, you know, I did this once to my knee, sliced my knee completely open that I could see the bone and all the tendons. And my brain disconnected from the pain. Um, And that's kind of a little bit of what I imagine happens to the voice in these circumstances. Literally, I had no voice. I couldn't even whisper. And I went over to Paul, the bass player, and went, like, literally nothing. And he, for of course, he thought I was just taking the piss or something like this. Um, <clears throat> but no, it literally just was gone. Like as if somebody had stabbed you and then your body had gone into some form of anaphylactic shock and just removed the pain from your senses. And it, I couldn't really speak or make a noise for maybe 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. If we had been able to just kind of replay the set later, I probably would have been able to do it because an hour and a half later we had a signing session and I was able to speak to people. Uh, And to this day, this is the only time that this has ever happened to me, that literally you've gone from a full-throated roar to just nothing, like literally nothing. I couldn't even whisper. Of course, there are... There is a steep learning curve um, for when you are on tour and you're young and you're a bit fucking stupid and you stay up till five in the morning drinking whiskey, trying to sing along to Back in Black, which, believe me, is pretty bloody difficult uh, to even get through half an album of that. But you will pay for that in the morning because, you know, like your body is a muscle like everything else. You know very well that if you go out on the go out drinking uh, one night and then try and get up the next day when you're a little bit older and play football, for example, and you will find that your muscles want to seize up because you're dehydrated. And this is the same thing that happens to your voice. You know, there are some people like um, Daniel from Marduk who never seem to lose their voice. He, he just talks like this and can sing for 40 day tours in a row. But some of us are not quite so lucky in a way you know I mean I will say this though that uh, one time on tour in the mid 2000s with Morning Beloved Frank from Morning Beloved said to me you know half of this is in your head if you worry about losing your voice the chances are you will lose your voice and he had a very good point and then so you attribute some part of it down to just confidence confidence that you're going to be able to get through what you're going to go through I always think of my voice in terms of percentages maybe it's because I'm on the spectrum anyway but I think of them in terms of percentages today I'm 65% able 40% able 80% able and realistically anything over 60% and I can get through the set once it starts to dip to halfway then you'll find me ducking out of some of the very high notes and some of the more black metal style vocals and so If you don't take care of yourself, then yeah, this is... is Some of you may have listened to the previous podcast and heard my vac and open air story about staying out all night and covered in dirt and this and that and the other. And these are the things. If you do a couple couple of those 
when you're in your 30s and you will get a shock. I once lost my voice completely in Finland and that was from minus 28 outside or something, 25 or something stupid, carrying gear in and out. And then I just found it like about an hour later after doing this, yeah, no voice. I just, I took a kind of a croaky voice that I could sing low. <clears throat> but it is very strange. It's like being disarmed, almost like being naked in public or something like this. It's a very, very strange feeling. Um, <clears throat> so that's, somebody asked me to talk about Bloodstock and I really, um, I did get tired of being asked about it because it just seemed to be something that the English press asked me every single time I sat down for an interview. So that time at Bloodstock, I was like, yeah. So here we are again. I personally haven't seen a video of it. I've no in. I'm not one of these people that watch videos of shows back. I just have no real interest. Or if it's a good show, I rather remember it as being good. I don't really want to go back and go. Oh, yeah, uh, mm. a few bum notes here. Like you know when you've done well or you haven't done. Considering that there is a bonus podcast on the Patreon where I discuss van touring. Um, and I just thought it might be interesting considering that the last podcast was also discussing festivals, the machinations, the movement through a weekend that it takes Primordial to go and play. Let's say, let's say a two or three festival weekends because often what happens is that you might do Germany, Belgium and France. Let's just pick those three countries. But it could be something completely different. So, Let's consider what that entails, you know, because I've, I know that just me whinging on about the virus can get a bit tiresome. I mean, it's everywhere, you know. I mean, I have some notes about it. Maybe we'll get to them, but let's roll with some musical stuff for the moment. So a three show weekend, it starts a bit like this. Um, normally festivals, I told you the last episode, are confirmed nine, sometimes 12 months in advance now. So we know very well. So what that usually means is meeting in Dublin airport at about 4 a.m., usually on a Thursday, um, if it's a three-show weekend. Uh, for me, that means no sleep because I'm a night owl. I'm not one of these people that can just clock off at 9 or 10 p.m. and get four or five hours sleep. A 4 a.m. start will mean getting up at maybe a quarter to four so I take care of all the backdrops, all my stage gear, all this kind of stuff. So I will have one rather like sort of five foot tall, five foot. Yeah, God, that, what's an old reference, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> you can work that out. For some reason in Ireland, we have the metric system. Yeah, I don't know why that is something. I'm um, no doubt some poke in the eye of the English or something like this. Anyway, I will have this big backdrop, bab, maybe, maybe 25, 30 kilograms. And then my other stuff for the weekend. So we will start at about 4 a.m., meet in the airport usually at half four. Gone are the days where, they, where you used to be able to get a flight at a reasonable hour at like 11 or 12 a.m. and arrive at two and, you know, have got some sleep and feel rested. And believe me, having no rest gets more difficult the older that you get. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've always played sport, which is to be able to take weekends like this on the chin. So you get to the airport four to five, check in. It's always the red eye because this is the cheapest. This is the cheapest option. So let's just say we start with Germany first. You'll lose your hour 
so we'll get to Germany at maybe 9, 10 a.m. If you're lucky enough to be able to sleep on a plane, you might get a few hours in there. Personally, nope, not a chance. Kiran, for example, can just lie back in the chair, go asleep and wake up as soon as we land. I always have way too many distractions. Um, if you're on a lucky, unlucky enough to be on a Ryanair flight. Um, although I will say in defense of Ryanair, they did open up. We've got to give them that. I mean, I've just to digress for a moment, but Primordial was offered a festival, I think one of the very first open air festivals in 1994, 95. And I think it was with Bethlehem dissection in flames. And back then we were sent Deutschmarks in an envelope, just ra- just in an envelope. And we only had enough for half the flights. And getting the other money together would have been the equivalent now of trying to find two or three thousand euro for two flights. Reiner busted that old cartel wide open. You've got to give them credit for that, despite how fucking annoying it is to fly with them at five in the morning being shouted at and trumpets going and etc. etc. And anyway, anyway, so we get there. We get in a van. You could land in Berlin, but have to drive for five or six hours. So you go drive for five or six hours. You probably will get to most fest. Most festivals will want you at the festival in the afternoon to try and either sound check or set up your merchandise, um, or at least send the merchandise in with them. Of course, everyone at a certain age just wants to go to the hotel and sleep. I mean, I will say that after that bloodstock incident, that was the last time that I shared rooms because the previous night to Bloodstock um, was mostly spent lying awake listening to people snore. If you're a sensitive soul like I am, well then you do need your personal space, of course. I mean, look, an LED light on a an LED light on a TV can keep me awake, so anyway however you know the rumor was of course that i'd lost my voice because i was up partying and being an idiot in fact the opposite is true it was spent lying in a room listening to uh, two stuck pigs call and response <clears throat> and i mean that in a loving affectionate way um anyway so you might get an hour or two you might get an hour or two at the hotel in the afternoon but usually by this stage i'm too starting to get wound up or at the idea. It's very hard to just like, okay, switch off for two hours. But you try, you try. And very often, if we're playing in the last couple of bands, you'll have to be at the festival maybe an hour or two before playing. So we will try and go down at maybe 6, 7 p.m., which if you've got to the hotel at 4 or 5, you can work out how much rest you get. So you're still ticking over on no sleep from the night before. And bear in mind that we ain't 25 anymore. So... Personally, I really like the pressure of playing last or playing near the end. I like, this is where I think I perform the best. These maybe sort of middle festivals where Primordial is near the end and you have the responsibility of the pressure of delivering a good set. You know, I I, I quite enjoy that responsibility. Some bands, some people like to get it out of the way and sort of they like to open or they like to be near the middle I'm not sure I'm not sure and it's not an egotistical thing I think I just I think I like the pressure you finish you wind down you maybe have a few drinks you see who's around hang out a little bit but the chances are you're on the next red eye the next morning because that's the cheapest way to get to the next country so you might get your head down at 1 2 a.m. 
to start again at 4 or 5 a.m. And you might have to drive, let's say we're going from, we have to drive, we have to drop into, we have to drive that four or five hours back to the same airport. So if you've driven four hours away from Berlin, let's say to the east, you're now driving back again in the morning to get the super early flight. Sometimes we've had, um, we've had bus calls that are three or four a.m. or they want to just take you straight from the stage. Anyway, so you might get to the airport. Let's say we're flying to, we're from Berlin to Brussels or something like this. Now it could be Berlin to Athens or Istanbul or something. Who knows? But let's just pick a short one. So then you have to go through the whole rigmarole again. Realistically, maybe you've, you could have had two, three, perhaps no hours sleep, even from the Wednesday, from when you, the night before you started off. So you fly you get again in in a van you get in a van again and you drive let's say you're driving west of brussels into the belgian countryside who knows it might take another two or three hours perhaps then but perhaps at this festival you're playing at six in the afternoon so therefore you go straight to the festival you have no chance really to rest of course you've got to also take into account that if you finish at seven or eight or nine yeah okay so you might have a few hours after that but somebody has to stay and look after the merch and collect it later on. You've also got natural adrenaline running through your veins or whatever else you might be drinking or taking. Who knows? But that's not what this is about. And the, you repeat the same process again the next day. So maybe you've got to go back to Brussels Airport for the 555. Let's say you're going to Warsaw. Now that's quite, that's, you know, that's two or three hours of, of a flight. And you get there and then you drive south. It's, I mean, I've landed in Warsaw and spent then seven hours in a van driving south to play in a castle. Now, of course, it would be ridiculous of me to complain about the things that you get to do because you always wanted, you've always wanted to be in a band and do those things. So just complaining about them. This is not what I'm doing. I'm explaining. I mean, I have to say it is tiresome, you know. And there will people say, people say to me, oh, you know, you probably really don't really do that much weekend, much when you go away and play in the weekend. But realistically, you're probably at work 20 hours of the day. Let's say 16 to 20 hours of the day. Add that up for a weekend and that's probably more work than most people do in a week. But anyway, there you go. That's kind of how it goes. And then you're left back in Dublin on Sunday. Um... And on Monday, you've got to go to Lidl. Well, you don't have to go to Lidl. You could go to Aldi. You could go to, if they want to sponsor me, fire ahead, fire ahead. Uh, no, you just have to go back to your routine then, you know. And that's a very strange, discombobulating experience to go from a whole weekend of, let's say it being the center of, not the center of attention, but having a, an awful lot of responsibility, an awful lot, a lot of movement. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of situations. There's, it's a constantly moving scenario to just being back in your flat, and that's often why band guys, band girls, band people, band animals, because we are animals, are a strange, strange breed because they become so used to massive highs that playing a festival like that can give you, that it makes it very hard to just sometimes sink back into normal life again. I mean, even now what we're doing, if this is normal life, then, well, it's not normal life, is it? But you know what I mean. So I have to admit that by now I'm feeling a kind of existential dread 
every time somebody sends me an invite for an online gig. I applaud people for trying to do something. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's the sort of slow, slow drip of depression. Let's call it the death by a thousand cuts of rock and roll, you know? I mean, not to be too melodramatic about it. It's kind of like as we fumble about in the dark looking for alternatives to playing live, there's just something so profoundly depressing about watching Metallica fumble their way through acoustic version of Blackened. One evening last week, I had the wine out and was on a Metallica binge from 83, 84, 85. Now, I get it. People want to do something. I mean, it's natural for any musician to want to try and do something to cope with this situation. Like uh, the festival experience I've just explained to you. I mean, when that's your life back and forwards every summer, to have that completely removed is a very unusual feeling that I'm not sure that most people could relate to. Um, but there's something about watching Metallica trudge through black and that was a bit like watching Muhammad Ali in his last years not being able to get through a sentence. You know what I mean? Maybe that's unfair of me to say. I mean, if heavy metal really was the impetuosity of youth, then there it was kind of laid bare in its laid bare in God's waiting room. And every time I now click on a link and looking at a band setting up in their front room or I mean, this is mostly goth and electronic music that does this, you know, because and I've said this before in a previous podcast and it's come to have more and more resonance for me. It's being an analog man in a digital age is one of the most complicated things to be fully aware of in the last few months. And I'm going to start to expand on that a little bit more. But electronic music lends itself much easier to what the parameters of quarantine are. But I found myself sitting in front of the screen examining the wall hangings. We have analog. We have an analog past and a digital future, so to speak. I mean, there are people that this whole experience suits, and those were the people who were gamers, for example. It's clear to me that labels are going to be looking for this now as a consideration when signing a band. Are any of them gamers? Because if so, that mean, that's going to be their revenue stream. Their revenue stream is going to be on Twitch, playing games or whatever they're going to do on there. Because, look, there isn't any money from streaming for bands. We can forget that. There isn't any money from YouTube. And don't forget, if a band signs to a label, they don't own their own band camp. So we can take away all of those revenue streams. And if there is no playing live, then that means that the only revenue stream potentially is going to be, let's say, for example, gaming. I mean, there's a character from an Irish TV show called the Hardy Bucks, the Viper, who just, I have no real understanding of, or had no understanding of this, but the guy has 80,000 followers and games and people tip. I mean, like I said, gaming doesn't have much gatekeeping, which the music industry does. And by the looks of it, this guy can make a couple of grand every week. No problem at all. This isn't really open to most musicians. And this is what gamers don't really understand or people who don't understand why every band can't lean into this kind of stuff, you know? I mean, you can't just become a gamer. So what this means is that for analog musicians, for old school musicians, once the ability to play live has been removed, there isn't much recourse for them. We can witness the desperate measures by you see by some bands trying to do cooking shows, all this kind of stuff. 
no problem a part of it can just be a fun way to try and deal with the mundanity of what's happening i mean look if this is the putsch by the new world order i thought we'd get more bang for our buck i thought it might have a little bit more drama and hubris and not just quite this level of dragging boredom however that's maybe something i'll discuss later on but the truth is that the ground right now for creativity or the ground right now for being able to make a living from and we've seen that the mainstream media hasn't really gotten to grips with much serious commentary about what the future is for not just music but entertainment in general it's usually been a hey look what those cookie musicians are doing over there i mean our own government here proposed 1000 1000 euro bursaries for quote unquote artists a thousand euro i mean this is mostly going to go on rent for most musicians and you had to prove that you had no other income but i mean what musician out there who's struggling isn't trying to hustle a few shirts or trying to hustle something it strikes me that what they were looking for was youtubers instagram influencers these are the people who are going to have purchase in this new digital future and i think that um we're going to see online festivals. We're going to see many, many more things like this, whether people like it or not. I mean, it's going to be hard for me to see how thousands of people from across the world gathering in a field together, even venues. How do you navigate strict toilet and bar circumstances without being, again, too melodramatic? If the future of rock and roll is in the hands of gamers, then I have to say that this is the this is the death knell of metal of rock of rock and roll of an analog process that had its own self-sustained economy through festivals and touring and with that removed the ground is just only seeded to people who have been using all these online parameters who are years ahead and personally i mean if for example, the weekends I just laid out at the start of the podcast are not happening anymore and all you can do is write remotely, then I have a feeling you're not going to hear any more music from me because that's playing live, the traveling, the human interaction was almost the reward for everything else. I mean, if the future is just going to be sitting in this room trying to develop content in order to ask to be paid, then I think I may have to clock out from that. And this brings us round to something that I've been thinking about in relation to the virus. My comment of being an analog man in a digital world, I think we can apply to other realms of society and how they're dealing with, for example, quarantine and lockdown. I think that I'm not a person who ever believed in the concept of, for example, white privilege. Um, to me, it's far too broad a statement to boil the experience and history of one entire race down to a word is an intellectual dishonesty on some level. Now, if we were to break that down, I mean, no one could particularly look at Irish history over the last 200 years and say that the Irish were born of privilege. So maybe what I'm not talking about is necessarily privilege. What it is, it's actually class. It's actually the digital class and the analog class. I said before that the future for the working class is going to be 
dealing with going from being used to useless. And I think that this virus has just accelerated that whole concept. So when we talk about privilege, let's call it digital privilege. I think this is much more apt. This makes more sense to me. And this is exemplified by the kind of people who are discussing this whole experience in terms of it being something like a holistic or almost Buddhist retreat, that this is the chance to get to know yourself. I'm not going to say that it's a white privilege. I don't think that that's true, but most definitely what it is is digital privilege. It's people who have already established an online living, an online life, an online income, who have savings from that, who don't have to go out and live in an analog way to make a living, you know, where you can pad around all day and do yoga and realign your chi and your chakra, while tens of millions of people are unemployed. And it's been very interesting to observe that I think everyone was waiting to see which side of the political divide they could fall on. And what turned what turned out to happen, the authoritarian elements of the new left came down on strict quarantine and lockdown, which I find fascinating. And the people they observed or claimed to be, let's say, on the right were the people who were willing to break it. But I think that that was a kind of too easy way of looking at it. I think what you saw was the division of digital and analog, in a sense. The people who had the space and time and financial security to want to observe the lockdown in such strict terms are on some level privileged to do so because there are now tens of millions of people who do not have that privilege. So I know that that comment in general is probably going to get me into trouble with some people because you're questioning the concept of white privilege. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm looking at it as an example in relation to what we're experiencing right now. And that is, I think it's called digital privilege, so to speak, whereby the people who are privileged on those terms are trying to tell working class people, and yes, class is still an issue in 2020, stay inside. We can't continue like this, though. We need to let people out to return to work. As I said, used to useless, analog to digital. Now, okay, I may be exaggerating etc etc I mean look if I just came on here and went Asher look at it, it'll be grand uh, wouldn't make much of a podcast you know I mean I'm aware that opening every podcast with meanderings about politics and the virus when it's coming at you from all sides is a bit tiresome so what I was trying to do there was to tie in this concept with in relation to what's happening to the music industry so like I said, I was going to fill the last half of the podcast with an interview, but I think I'll start that next time. So what I'm going to do is look back at the recording and the circumstances surrounding the very first primordial album in Rama in 1994, um, which seems like an outrageously long time ago now. And just the strange things that you just rolled with because you were young and you didn't really know any difference. So we made our demo in 1993. It was our contribution to this 
second wave of black and death metal. I, mean, I think we missed the boat maybe by about six or nine months. And maybe if the demo had been mastered and released as a 12-inch, but it is what it is. We recorded it for 50 euro, well, 50 pounds, actually, 50 Irish pounds, in um, a guy's front room converted studio. So when we went to go and make Imrama, we got signed to Cacophonous Records. Somebody asked me on Instagram, is it true that Danny Filth had a lot, had a hand to play in us getting signed? And that's true. He's the one who gave our demo to Neil from Cacophonous Records back in the day. We organized a show in mid-90 or early 94, I would say, with um, Decomposed and Corpse from uh, Scotland and London. Uh, both really good albums, their first two albums, both bands. Um, and uh, the live soundboard recording from that show is what, along with the demo, got us our deal with Cacophonous. So anyway, we go and we... The idea of receiving, I think it was something like two or three thousand pounds sterling back in those days. Like I told you, the price of flights and that kind of thing was so expensive it seemed so expensive to us as teenagers you know so we received <clears throat> i think maybe two thousand pounds sterling to make him rama and we hired all of this gear into this small tiny studio um we had no outboard effects units so there was no like outboard reverb or delay or anything like this in fact we i remember using we used a guitar pedal for delay on the vocals um We couldn't seem to, if as I remember, figure out how to drop things in. So all of the vocals are more or less first take, as I remember, because we just couldn't go back and drop in vocals. So there's no backing vocals, nothing like this. We recorded every evening, only really maybe a few hours every evening over a kind of 10 day period. In reality, the whole thing was probably done f between 10 and 15 hours, I would imagine. Um, What we didn't realize is that um, recorded analog. And again, I come back to what's one of the reasons I was I, I it was in my head to think about this story was because, again, the analog and the digital world, you know, this is back when if you think about. And I don't I, th I guess being in. The music industry, there are certain things and having recorded lots of things for so many years, there's some things you just take for granted that you realize most people don't really think about it. If you an analog. An vinyl is analog. And if you think about it, an analog sound wave is essentially smooth, whereas a digital sound wave, it's a difference between pixelated and a smooth sound wave, so to speak, you know. Digital is, digital hadn't really started then. We had Cubase, but there was no Pro Tools in 1993, 94. Um, and you could, nobody really recorded metal on Cubase back in the early 90s. So you recorded live drums you didn't play well we never I we've never played any album to a click track Primordial's never used a click track so even if you think about the cassette recorder you had you know you've probably seen uh, as a phone cover now or um, a kind of cutesy um, thing that one of the kids on Stranger Things has or something probably that annoying kid with no front teeth or something uh Cassettes themselves were very small versions of the big reels that you see in studios. And the width of the tape was related to the quality and how much information could be stored on it. So most albums back then were recorded on two inch reels, which means the width of the tape was two inches. 
So, of course, we didn't really realize that that was the standard industry practice. So we hired like a half inch real machine. Um, of course, which has varying sound quality and recorded the album over a couple of hours every night for 10 days in the middle of 1994. I personally, from my side, I had to get the train and the bus out, which took me about an hour, an hour and a half every day. Arrived, would sing two or three songs and then have to go. Um, so we made Imrama. Uh, don't forget, a lot of this was just over letter writing. It was just about the odd phone call to England. And of course, you know, you weren't allowed to use the phone properly back then. Just an, even a 20 minute phone call to England was enough to send an Irish mother into parasisms. Um, and you had no money back then to pay for anything anyway. So just having to pay 10 pounds for a phone call was just something you, you couldn't do, you know, just to put things into some sort of odd perspective. So we ended up with this rather strange sounding record um, that didn't really sound even as good as the demo, maybe. We'd spent about 10 days on it in the evening. A half inch real machine was what we had at the end of it. And the tape I sent to Cacophonous, we both agreed this doesn't really work. Of course, we had no idea of the length of time it takes to arrange things exactly. So we said, oh, well, how about we go to Academy Studios in Yorkshire? This is the famous Paradise Lost Anathema studio. We go there to try and mix it. And so I thought, oh, we can go in like a week or two weeks. But of course, this is primetime Academy Studios. Um, they don't have a weekend free for months and months. So we had to sit on this rather odd sounding record um, for months. And then I went to Academy Studios in Yorkshire via London to mix it with Neil from Cacophonous Records. But of course, we couldn't, you couldn't fly. I mean, there wasn't money to fly. So back then, what we always used to do to go to gigs, and maybe I'll tell some stories about those, is that Irish people, you, you know, big gang Irish lads would go over on the ferry to Hollyhead and the train down to London and just, you know, cause mayhem and run amok. That was maybe 93, 4, 5 kind of era. Um, so that's what I had to do. And Neil from Cacophonous uh, managed to source a half-inch real machine, which at this stage, this was practically an obsolete technolo technology a half inch real machine because academy were like well no way we don't have a half inch real machine you're gonna have to find a i don't know and you're gonna have to bring up your own machine so that we can transfer it onto one of our reels now today recording only onto analog reel those reels themselves cost about 1500 or 2000 euro if, if i'm not incorrect no doubt somebody will correct me um and they're only 14 minutes long. So primordial songs at seven or eight or nine minutes long, we needed a reel for each song. Now back then they weren't that expensive. But now if we wanted to do record only onto analog reel, we'd probably be looking at five to 8,000 euros of reel costs, as in or double E L, um, before you take into account any other costs, which is one of the reasons why most people, even if they use the analog desk, will eventually mix into Pro Tools, which is essentially a version. Of, uh, I'm using GarageBand now to record this. So GarageBand is kind of like a version of Pro Tools for Mac, so to speak. 
Um, you could have used it as audacity, maybe, for example. Anyway, I get and I digress. So I arrive over in London uh, with Neil, and we have to take because uh, you know he doesn't drive. He's a he's a he's an old punk. So <clears throat> we have to carry this huge half-inch reel machine across London in rush hour um, to get on a train to go to Leeds. And this is Friday night with this huge old half-inch reel machine. We get the train up to Leeds, arrive in Leeds. Of course, you know, it's 1994, so we're both wearing like leather trench coats, leather trousers, no doubt New Rock boots. Possibly I've even got a bullet belt on. I would imagine so. Some kind of pirate shirt uh, is standard, I can say without a shadow of a doubt. Um, eyeliner optional, who knows? Um, you know, we're all just trying to look like Martin Ayn from Celtic Frost in 1986 or 87. That was my main goal. Anyway, so we then, of course, look like two, uh, you know, high school shooters trying to make our way across Leeds on a Friday night as Leeds is winding up to be Leeds on a Friday night. And I don't know if you've, if you're not from the UK or Ireland, um, Friday night, kind of like post office, 6 to 9, 10 p.m. in like a Leeds or a Bradford or a Glasgow or a Belfast or um, Dublin used to be like this. Not so much as not so much anymore. Well, not nothing is like it was anymore, but um, it could get pretty, you know, there's a whiff of brimstone in the air, especially the north of England. You know, you'd be Friday night out in some of these cities. Newcastle on a Friday night would be filled with uh head the balls, you know, lads in freezing temperatures and football jerseys ready to kick your head in. And here's two, uh, you know, black metal warriors wheeling a huge big silver case around Leeds looking for a hostel, you know. To say that we had to wheel that half-inch real machine down some dodgy streets at some pace would be an understatement. Anyway, so we get to... We're in Leeds. We have to. We then have to travel to Dewsbury, Dewsbury, which is a kind of suburb of Bradford. Um, I mean, you know, to put that into perspective, there are places I like in the world, and I don't think I've ever spent more time in them than I have in Bradford. Which, no offense if you live in Bradford, but it's the arsehole of the world. It really is. Um, I've spent more time there than. Well, think of somewhere nice. Anyway, so we arrive in Academy Studios with this half-inch reel machine, have to hook it up to the two-inch reel machine in the hope that we're able to transfer things across. We find that there are microphones that have nothing on them. There's this missing, that missing, all sorts of crazy stuff. But But the cherry on top of this mixing session is that our boy Neil looking back now has us staying in a, uh, a squat just an empty house just an empty building in Yorkshire uh, so all of our rooms just had beds full of <laughs> dirt um, just like no doors uh, it's freezing cold we're all trying to you know uh, wash our hair in the toilet this kind of thing no idea. I don't really have an explanation as to why that happened. I presume it. I mean, I know it's financial, but um, 
as I remember, Kieran um, came over on the ferry to Liverpool and took the took the bus across from there. He didn't do the via London um, like twenty hour journey that I did, but uh, the the amazing experience of spending two or three days in a freezing cold empty house in Yorkshire with no door uh, in beds covered in dirt will stay with me and out of that experience uh, Mags who is one of the most important characters to the old story of Primordial the fabric of who we became um, a really influential generous gregarious, insightful and great human being who really, really guided the early uh, impetuosity and foolishness of us um, as primordial. He recorded the early My Dying Bride or, or early Paradise Lost, all this kind of stuff. Um, he was really a, a very uh, influential person in our old, in, the, in, the, in like let's call it the first chapter or first two chapters of the primordial story. Uh, and out of that came Imrama, which listening back to, I'm still pretty proud of. It's I'm not one of these people who dis dislikes old albums or that kind of stuff. I still find great pride even in the first rehearsals that we pressed onto a seven inch with Greater Men Have Fallen. And maybe some of you have or haven't heard that. I know that most people who buy vinyls now don't actually have a vinyl player. However, uh, there is our first rehearsal from September 1991, which we managed to, which we managed to press onto a seven inch, which was the seven inch in my head that we should have made back then. Anyway, so out of that, then we get our Imrama, and we have to wait then six or seven months before it comes out. Um, it gets mastered in an analog way on these old analog tapes. John Fay from Kruokon made the artwork. One thing people find also strange is that, for example, the artwork of Imrama, I laid out on flat art, i.e., again, analogue. I laid it out on huge, big sheets of cardboard. My uncle had designed the album covers for U2 and amongst lots of other bands, Elvis Costello and stuff, from the late 70s up through the 80s. And this is 94, so I was in his offices being shown how to lay out on flat art the artwork little scalpel and all the various um, typesets and everything like this, you know, which you then sent off as big pieces of flat art to be printed by the printers, you know. Everything was done in an analog way. The whole process of making an album then, from the letter writing to the phone calls to traveling over on the boat and the train um, to the way we recorded it, to the reel-to-reel -reel machines, everything was analog. Um, there was, and it sort of ties into the general theme of the podcast today about being analog men in a digital world. I mean, I'm not going to say that old dogs can't learn any new tricks, but for sure, the structure upon which we built a career is an analog structure. Now, it remains to be seen whether that structure is going to be completely swept away by the onset of digital remote living, you know? This is kind of what I've been trying to get at with this particular podcast. So anyway, it took another six or seven months for this album to come out. And then maybe if you go back and listen to my first podcast, you will hear the story of our first ever tour with Psy. 
and I remember guiding to the first date of the tour with Sai and me and Kieran going down to the post office to collect the first 50 copies of the CD. The very first time you open the very first box to look at the CD. And forget, don't forget, it wasn't made on vinyl yet. Vinyl hadn't enjoyed the resurgence that it was going to go through. So we didn't see it on vinyl for, well, until it was bootleg, but that's another story. Um, so that first moment where you open the box and you think, wow, this is, it really was a special, special experience that I don't think, do people understand things the same way? I don't know. I mean, they're different times, obviously. I think that the way we recorded and made that record, that moment where you open the boxes and you pull out your first ever release, the first ever CD, um, really is something special. I just remember sitting there and just literally staring at it for hours. You'd made a mark, an imprint. Something you'd done, an endeavour, a creative endeavour had come to fruition and it really was an incredible experience that I'm not sure exists the same way because I, I don't think, I don't feel at least that music has the same worth or meaning. I mean, obviously... Maybe that sounds like a privileged, conceited thing to say. I don't know. But for sure, music seems less important in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it seems less important than we can say even podcast. I mean, for sure, people are listening to less music because they're listening to more podcasts. I can say this even from my own intake. And here I am contributing that to that with a podcast while at the moment not putting out any new music. So... That speaks for itself, I guess, you know. Anyway, that's the story of Imram. And maybe now go back and have a listen to the first episode if you didn't listen to it. And then you plug that right into the story of Psy. I had some more commentary about the politics and the virus of the current situation. But you know what? I got a bit tired of listening to myself say the same thing over and over again. Like I, I hinted at in the middle of this is that if this is the putsch by the New World Order, then I expected a bit more drama. It's boring me, guys. It's boring me. Anyway, so let's keep it a little bit more musical for the time being. So the next episode will have an interview. It will have some special guests from here on in dotted around the place but if you want me to talk about something let me know um, at the moment the best place to follow me is on Instagram at primordial underscore nemthianga um, until the next time remember metal never bends normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.